The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Thanks for joining us. So at these weekly practice groups, I or another one of the teachers here at the center, we usually have a guided meditation like we just finished, and then talk about some aspect of the Buddhist teachings on awareness practice, sometimes called mindfulness. It's really a wisdom path. And it's interesting, you know, when the Buddha assessed his own predicament as a human being, you know, having a conditioned mind, conditioned by culture, conditioned by, you know, through our upbringing, conditioned even by our genetic conditioning, makeup. Then we have a life that sort of is an acting out or an expression of all that conditioning. And of course, we know at least theoretically that none of that conditioning is personal. I may be a jerk, or I may be this way or that way because of my habits or conditioning, but it's not really personal. I didn't personally choose choose to be conditioned this way. I'm responsible for my conditioning my habits, my dispositions, my biases, the ignorance that basically I'm the living expression of, right? We are the continuation. This is sort of shocking, but it's really good to own it. We are the absolute continuation of our parents, of our culture, right? So it makes a lot of sense that the world looks this way when all of us are just the natural continuation of what was in motion. And as human beings, we have this potential to be curious, right? Either we can be lost, caught up, distracted by distractions, so much so that we're not even aware that we're just acting out habits over and over again, doing the same thing, getting the same results, or we can become reflective or mindful, or we can wake up, right? We have these different ways of languaging what in this tradition, you know, we consider this path, whether you want to call it a spiritual path or it doesn't really matter what we call it, but we see just in from checking out our own life, it's a real switch, you know, from living a life of distraction filling up the space of our life with interesting things to think about and react to and, you know, you know how we can do that. There's always interesting trips to take and interesting problems to solve. And there's also this possibility of being reflective, like, oh, like the first step is that, oh, there's a mind here. Or you could say there's the space of my heart, the space of the mind, the space of the present moment. This all, this acting out of my habits, my life, this all is happening here and now in the space of the present moment, right here. And by getting interested in that space, right here, right now, you know that, you sense that reflective space of here and now, the tone of it, the flavor of it, whatever that flavor of the particular mood of the mind right now, or the attitude of the mind, Maybe it's a little numb or 
like a desert. Nothing's happening. Well, that's the flavor of your mind right now, right? Or like, this is stupid. A kind of a little arrogant stance, like a bunch of wishy-washy, good-for-nothing, you know. Oh, that's the mood. That's the stance. That's the quality of the mind right now. You know, that said, oh, this is the greatest thing since mayonnaise or something. <laughs> oh, but that that's sort of like thinking you got it or this is, you know, I'm so glad I came tonight. The, and it's not about evaluating any attitude or mood as like, oh, that's the right one to have or that's the wrong one to have, but just to recognize right now that's part of what's here. This mind, this habit, this particular mental coloring or... Um, like a filter almost through which we construct our reality, like what we think is happening right now, who I think I am right now. And this reflectiveness, like getting on a spiritual path, being interested, for example, in the Buddhist teachings on awakening, it really comes from this question that I asked a couple of weeks ago for those who weren't here, like why bother training the mind? Why would, or you could use the word heart, why bother training the heart? And somehow, you know, if we're lucky, this is from my point of view and and perhaps the Buddhist point of view, if we're lucky enough, fortunate enough, just in getting pushed around in life, the ups and downs, joys and sorrows, and how burdensome that getting pushed around is for us, we get curious, we become reflective, And just even with a little bit of reflectiveness, we begin to locate that the cause of this this me here, this body-mind, the cause of its tightness, the cause is here. Because casually, superficially, we think the cause is out there, like you're making me tight, or this situation, politics is making me tight, or the ignorance of my partner or the person at work or the weather or the... But we, you know, and even objectify our body, like my body's making me upset. But we don't see that in the most personal space, like this activity of the body and the mind right here, lies the very seed of what we call suffering or stress or feeling burdened in life. Because it's kind of a provocative, because once it once we locate it here, it's really shocking because that means that it's optional. And and I've mentioned this several times in the last few months, that we have to be careful about how we say that and where we say that, you know, because it can really be offensive to go to somebody who's suffering and say, hey, you know, your suffering is optional. I read that pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional, right? That's a line you hear in some Buddhist circles. Pain, mental and physical pain, emotional and physical pain, can't be avoided as human beings, right? We bump our heads, we stub our toes, we experience loss, we experience these eight worldly winds of gain and loss and pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, as the Buddha says the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds. You can look it up. The more famous talks by the Buddha. 
But suffering because of the eight worldly wins. So the eight worldly wins, you know, it's not necessarily the same for each of us, how much gain, how much loss, how much pain, how much pleasure. But we all get pushed around in our own particular way, given our own particular circumstance, circumstances. But how much we suffer because of the getting pushed around by circumstance, that is in play. And that's sort of interesting. And when we really study our life carefully, we see sometimes something very similar happens to another time. But one time there was a lot of suffering. I really was burdened. I really felt depressed. I got really upset. I got really entangled. And other times that, you know, we have these phrases just sort of rolled off of me or wasn't much of a problem at all. So that's sort of interesting, like why that was so hard to bear. And then another time with something very similar happened, not much of a problem at all. Or we see it from one person to the next. Something happens to somebody, totally devastated, totally exists for them and their life as a real burden, a real knot, caught. And another person, not so much. Now, the thing is, it's really useful to stay open. We don't want a fixed view, but we want to stay open that the causes for suffering, not the cause for pain, mental emotional, physical pain, but the resistance to the pain, the not liking of the pain, the thrashing around because I'm experiencing pain, that is optional because that keeps us interested. So this is a real turning point, and I just want to repeat it before going on. When you start to go from being a helpless person where you think my happiness and suffering is due to external causes that I don't have much control over. So if I have good fortune, I'm just going to run with it because I don't know how long it's going to last. Or if I have bad fortune, I'm just going to feel screwed because I'm, I'm not in control. And the thing is, that's a very compelling argument because pain shows up for us because of these multitude of causes. A lot of them don't feel personal, right? So this understanding that I'm pointing to, that the Buddha points to, really is making the distinction between what, it may be just to use two different words, pain comes with being a human being. There's no avoiding it. And it's not even right to call pain good or bad. It's just pain mental, physical, emotional pain. It just comes with the territory. We have a sensitive heart. That sensitivity, that sensitive heart is going to be touched by gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Inevitably, always. And then the interesting question is, given the habits of the mind, the condition of the mind, what's my mind going to do with gain or loss, pain or pleasure, fame, or disrepute, praise or blame. What does it do with it? That's the interesting thing, because that's always in play, uh, in play. And even if I start to take the praise personally, 
or the blame personally, right? In any moment, I can notice what the mind is doing, how the mind is relating to the pain or pleasure in the moment, and I can turn it around. I can completely switch. Because isn't that true? Like, haven't you caught yourself, like maybe you have a little canker sore in your mouth, and you're just like irritated by it. You keep poking it with your tongue and, you know, whatever. Want it to go away. When is this going to go away? And then all of a sudden, it's like there's enough balance or clarity, and you just have a little window about how much stress the reactivity is creating for yourself, and it just like drops away. You just stop turning the canker sore into a problem or the bad knee into a problem. You're not resisting it. The knee hasn't all of a sudden gotten better. The canker sore hasn't gotten away, gone away. Or if you're you know, feeling burdened by loss, somebody, some situation in your life that felt good is now gone, But all of a sudden, the mind isn't bothering to turn it into a personal problem. It's just the ache of the loss that remains, or the, you know, whatever it is, the throbbing of the knee or the stinging of the canker sore. And just that being known, the mind isn't bothering, isn't feeling compelled to construct a story about me who doesn't like it and therefore is getting tight in this moment, and then we become the tight one. We don't have to take birth as the tight one, the resistant one, the one who hates this situation or wants this situation. The Buddha often used that language. People get confused sometimes when they read the Buddhist teachings because especially the the Pali Canon or the traditional discourses because the Buddha talks about taking birth, and people think, oh yeah, I mean next life. Maybe maybe the Buddha meant that in part. But he definitely means, like all day long, we've been taking birth. The mind constructs an identity, and because the mind doesn't know better, it gets identified with that identity, that story. It takes it personally. And then we've taken birth for some minutes. I'm the person who's this or that, wants this, doesn't want that. It becomes like our bubble that we live in. And then if some perspective or understanding pops that bubble, the very strong tendency of the mind is to create another identity to attach to. But you can check right now. It's possible for each of us right now, just check as I'm talking. Can we be in this moment totally open? We're not trying to get anywhere, right? We're just aware, sitting hearing, seeing. Do we need an identity? Do, we, do I or you, do we need a story about what's happening or who I am or who Mark is? Do we need to actually define or cling to any particular view or idea right now? Or can the mind, the heart, remain in this open place, this unfixed place? Like even in terms of the relationship to the sound. I can be aware of that sound without having a fixed idea or I can be aware of that sound with a very fixed idea like, hey, didn't I mention to shut this up (laughs) up? 
Please don't be embarrassed because I have a mind like a sieve now. As I get older, it's like... Or maybe you came in a little late after I said that to the group. But in any case, we all space out, you know, in our own own ways. And and we can take it personally. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. But we don't have to. That's optional, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess I did hear that. And it feels like this. And I don't really need to define who I am based that I didn't shut my cell phone off, whether it's because you came in late or you didn't hear what I said or whatever the reason is. Do we need a story? We don't. But we often do. And then because of the way our mind is conditioned, we tend to cling to whatever story we tell ourselves. I'm good, I'm bad, I'm the same as, I'm better than, I'm worse than. But we don't have to do it. So in that sense, suffering is optional. Pain, like so much of our life, like even just the karma of our body. You know, if we've been smoking cigarettes for 40 years, there's something already set in motion, not easily turned around, right? Or if you've exercised a lot and eaten really well, there's some particular wholesome conditions that are in motion. Or if you haven't eaten well, haven't exercised, or you just have, you know, this sort of set of genetic conditioning for your body or that or you lived in a polluted area, or you lived in a clean area, right? But what our mind does with those parts of our life that are in motion, just like where we live or the culture we live in, who's going to turn that around on a dime, right? So, But what our mind does with the particular circumstances, cultural circumstances, political, weather... That's really in play. And so it's really appropriate for us to get interested, like, and I've mentioned this in the last few weeks, you know, the real fruit of practicing sincerely for 37 years is my mind is really suspicious when they're suffering. My mind gets curious. Like when I notice, oh, I am a suffering being, right? Like I'm hurting. I'm tight, I'm reactive, I'm resistant, I'm wanting, I'm not wanting. Then I get interested. Oh, there's something here and now, not out there, but right here and now that's not being seen clearly. Because I have enough confidence that when what's here and now is seen clearly, suffering diminishes, contraction falls away. Things lighten up. I've seen that so many times in formal meditation periods, informal living my lifetime, where my mind came into balance, awareness came into balance, present moment awareness, seeing things as they are, and the whole construction of me being tight, me being needy, me wanting to fix something, me being jealous, me being envious, me wanting revenge, me wanting things to keep, you know, the pleasant stuff to keep going on. Whatever the fixed state was, I've seen that all, and the weight of that fixed state, I've seen it all evaporate or fall away or melt away or whatever you want to call it. Oh, and then it sort of confirms, you know, each time. Oh, suffering is not 
necessary. Suffering is always optional. These conditions that are here right now, not optional. Like in Buddhism, from the Buddhist teaching point of view, we say this moment right now, like if you want to know what happened in the past, well, whatever happened in the past, those were the conditions that lead this moment to be this way. That's, that's how we know the past. This moment, the way it is for each of us right now, this is a beautiful and lawful expression of everything past. Right? If the past wasn't the way that it was, whatever that was, this wouldn't be this way right now. You want to know the future? You don't need a psychic. Look at how your mind is relating to whatever's showing up now because whatever's showing up, there's nothing we can do about because it's showing up because of past causes. So the only relevant thing right now is not to resist what's showing up or to grasp it because we like it, but to see it in a way that sets emotion freedom, like to be free, to be clear, to be open, to be intimate, to be non-reactive to what's here and now arriving out of the past. So I'm practicing being free. And I'm setting emotion freedom by practicing being free. Now, I may not like what's showing up for me right now. And in a very real sense, like a political sense, it may not be fair what's showing up for some of you right now. You may, in fact, be mistreated by your partner, for example, or your boss, or by society. So when we say that it's lawful, it doesn't mean that it's fair. It just means that what's in motion from the past is expressing itself as this. right? And so the question remains, what do I do with this that's showing up right now? How can I not contribute to suffering? How can I relate to this, show up, be with this, meet this in a way that doesn't contribute to my suffering and the suffering of others? And you see, it's a very empowered point of view. It's not a passive. A lot of times, because the Buddha's teachings rely so much on developing this balanced present moment awareness, which has a receptive quality to it, absolutely. But it's really a way to meet the moment in an empowered way. Like we have to, the the receptive piece of it is like, I have to understand that this moment, it's already this way. And that any resistance to it, any denial of it, any delusion, like I don't want to see it, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to know it, is just setting that emotion for the future which isn't going to help anybody. So to have an honest and intimate and fearless and responsive connection with the present moment, to be say, yeah, whatever shows up, I'm going to dance with it. I'm going to do my best to meet it, to see it, to feel it. And to respond, to participate, like, okay, how to show up, what to do next, And to track that with present moment awareness, like what kind of seeds are getting planted? 
And having that attitude, we really begin to understand the difference between what's skillful, planting seeds of release, and what's unskillful, planting seeds of suffering. And we're, we have this laboratory called the present moment. Nobody can take that laboratory aware, away from us. We can be thrown in prison. I mean, I'm not saying all conditions are equally easy to practice. But really, we can practice in any situation, right? Because whatever the condition is, the question remains the same. Okay, this is how it is. When I relate this way to this present moment situation, am I planting wholesome seeds that have a flavor of release now and set in motion release ease, freedom in the future? Or am I relating to the present moment in ways that are tight now and set emotion tightness in the future? See, it's a very straightforward and pragmatic way. So like when you go home and you're having an interesting or maybe difficult interaction with your cat or your partner or whatever, even with yourself in your mind, right? Then just that have this frame, right? Okay, whatever's happening... Whatever the condition of the mind and body is right now, that's arising from the past. So this is the receptive piece. I yield to whatever's showing up. But the only reason I'm yielding is because it's already here. And resistance is futile. Some of you remember the reference. (laughs) Some of the nerds in the room. (laughs) Star Trek Next Generation. If you need a reference, <laughs> resistance is futile. So, but it's really true because, oh no, it is this way. This is how it is. So that's that more receptive part of our practice. There's two flavors to our practice: the relaxation, the receptive quality, and the assertive, the wholesome desire to be skillful, to show up in a skillful way. And that's how I relate. So first, like in order for me to relate to the present moment, I have to be receptive. I have to receive it. I have to understand this moment can't be different than what it is because it is the perfect expression of everything past. Here it is. This is my life. I can deny it. See how that works? I can want it to be other than what it is. I can blame somebody. I can try to make it last. All of those cause stress. Or I can, be, I can, for a moment, allow the heart to yield, to receive, to allow. Yeah, it's like this. It feels like this. It looks like this. It seems like this. This is how it is right now. And then what takes birth in that moment of full receptivity intimacy is like a response that comes out of the intimacy, the willingness to be undefended and open and intimate and vulnerable. We're actually meeting the reality. We are vulnerable. We are totally, completely vulnerable to what in Buddhism we call conditionality. It's related to karma, right? like there's this great, amazing web 
of causality, of stuff happening, all interdependent, and we're totally, totally, completely vulnerable, except, this is the present moment in, uh, input, this is the assertive piece, I get to dance with it. Like, and this is, like in Buddhism we call it the, the uh, place of view, or how the mind relates, how the mind understands. Now, for most human beings, we're not playing in this place, because the way we relate in every moment of our life is determined by habit. But when we become more and more mindful, then we realize there are options to how I show up, how I relate to this moment. I could be frustrated and get identified with the frustration, or I can recognize, oh yeah, frustration's not helping. It's unskillful. It's adding to contraction. I can have compassion for the frustration. Oh, things are lightening up. It's rolling on in a more easy way because I'm forgiving and compassionate about the resistance. Or I can be accepting. I can have a divine sense of humor about everything in motion. There's any, we can go, what's so interesting, the more you practice, I'm sure people in the room can confirm this, and in a moment we'll open it up for discussion, we can go from being a miserable, suffering human being to moments of being really free, really light, feeling directly, immediately unburdened in our life, and then back to being suffering, and back to being unburdened. And But it's that's called good practice. Because all that movement between really suffering and really not suffering, it just keeps reinforcing that suffering is optional, which keeps reinforcing interest. If it's optional, I'm interested. Right? We only give up when we we believe the story that suffering's not optional because this outside thing is causing it and I'm not in control. I'm doomed or... I've been targeted by God or whatever we think. It's not fair. And we don't feel, we don't believe there's a practice, a liberating practice. This is a real turning point. And it's, you can self-diagnose when you lose, I think it's okay to use the word faith, although I know it will push some people's buttons. But faith, that there's something to do in our life than just get dragged around by circumstance, right? There is a process or a path of awakening. And, you know, a lot of our spiritual ancestors, the folks that have come before us, this is what they pass along generation by generation. You don't just have to be another miserable human being who either thinks they're right or thinks they're stupid. Right? There are other options for this human life. This sort of endless, you know, when we look around, I mean, I'm not, I understand, I, cause I find myself also in these, you know, endless loops that aren't helpful for anyone, but we don't have to be in those places. And the, the basic way to step out is to have enough of this balanced present moment awareness to recognize the potency of the present moment. Okay, it's like this now. I'm not going to waste my time lamenting the way that it is. 
I'm going to put all my energy into what is the skillful way of relating, what is the unskillful. And I'm just as happy to learn this isn't helpful as I am to learn this is helpful. Because it's all about the learning. So when you relate to the present moment in a way that's making you tight, don't waste the opportunity. That's a that's an in, a powerful insight to realize, oh, sitting here being envious is tying the heart, mind, and body into a knot. When the mind sees that clearly, it makes a deep impression. Honey, don't do that. That's not helpful. It's not a judgment. It's not like a self-hatred. It's like solid spiritual gold. Like, oh yeah, envy doesn't help anybody. It's like, how many times do we put our hand in boiling water? Right? Or how many times has your cat jumped on to a hot stove? Once or twice. Never again. Right? But how many times do we repeat some psychological, emotional pattern that's really self-destructive? Thousands and thousands. And the reason is there's no presence that really sees what's going on. The mind, the wisdom in the mind hasn't seen, oh my God, this isn't helpful. Same with like skillful ways of being, skillful ways of relating and really catching, oh yeah, that really helps. This is from one of our great uh, sort of lineages here in the Western early Buddhist scene. Common Ground is in the early Buddhist tradition, Theravada Buddhism. More recently now we call it early Buddhism or insight meditation, Vipassana meditation here in the West, coming out of Theravada Buddhism in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Laos and a few other places. But one of the great teachers from the last century who trained a lot of Westerners, Ajahn Chah, this Thai teacher, Buddhist monk, died in the 90s. This is Jack Kornfield talking about him. Jack Kornfield, you might know, uh, went to Thailand back in the late 60s and ordained for, I think, six, five years, something like that. He said, or he wrote, when I first arrived in the forest monastery of Ajahn Chah, he looked at me and said, Imagine this, you know, you're a young Westerner going to Thailand back in the day. Jack Hornfeld had been in the Peace Corps and then got interested in Buddhism. Shows up at the monastery and this, you know, revered, wise, Ajahn Chah looks a little bit like a frog. <laughs> kind of small and just sort of a funny shaped head. And he, and he says, to, we have a, a painting of him in the community room you could see in the little altar I hope you're not afraid to suffer. Now, that's sort of a provocative thing, first line from your teacher to be. I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I said, what do you mean, afraid to suffer? That's Jack Kornfield. And Ajahn Chah said, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering you run from, which follows you everywhere. Sound familiar? right? I mean, basically, living life in a way that haunts us. We never get away from what we're running from. And the suffering that you are willing to turn and face and thereby find the liberation that the Buddha taught for us all. right? And that's really what we're doing. We're turning toward, we're getting interested. And that place is right here in the present moment and observing how potent, how the mind is relating, 
how the mind is understanding. What's the view? What's the attitude? What's the mood? That's a really good question. Now, we'll come back and continue on next week. But this week, you might just try that question. Just pop it in during your formal sitting time, but also during the day. What's the mood right now? How's the mind relating to the present moment? What's it fixing on? What attitude or view or understanding is it establishing itself in? Something that, you know, seems like truth. Because any fixed view, even a really beautiful fixed view, is problematic. The fixedness makes it problematic, not the view. Like, it's totally okay for me to have the thought, I'm better than the rest of you. Or, I'm worse than the rest of you. What makes it a cause for suffering is when my mind thinks it's true. The fixedness, right? Because when I have the thought, I'm no good, you're so much better than me, that thought comes from past causes, right? So there's no way, like, if you have a neurotic thought, you can't stop yourself from having neurotic thoughts because there's some past causes, momentum. And it will be different for each of us, like how our neurosis expresses itself, being arrogant or being you know, self-hateful. But we can't stop it. But we can notice that it's just that thought. And we don't have to fix on it. We don't have to get caught by it. And that's the present moment input. Not that we don't have neurotic thoughts, but what do we do with them? Do we feed them through identification? Or do we realize, oh yeah, of course, sometimes my mind thinks that thought. It's like this sometimes. Can that be okay? Yeah. It's not a wholesome thought. But it's very wholesome right now to see that that's just a thought and that it's not helpful, it's not skillful. That's very skillful. And that's how we turn our life around. Not by not ever doing anything silly or unwholesome, but by recognizing it for what it is. Yeah, it's just something arising from the past that's characterized as being unwholesome. And seeing it clearly is very wholesome and liberating. It's really powerful. So I'll leave it here. Remember, the etiquette is to stay all the way to 8.30 on Sunday nights. And this is a way of just respecting the community and learning from each other. And we take this time just to hear from other people, just checking in what you've been learning in your practice, questions that have come up that you'd like to ask. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this, horizontal. Who would like to begin? We do record usually Sunday nights. Yeah, please start us up. Thanks, instantly. Straight back. Hi, um, my name's Mary Laurel, and I have a really specific um, thing that I've been dealing with, and I can tell you a little bit about my process, and I'm trying to figure out where to go with it. So um, I live in a housing co-op, and um, in, I have a, in the hallway there are lots of boxes right now, and they've been there a really long time of someone else's. And so I first noticed, okay, I really don't like that. Don't get tight that they're there. You know, so I had that thought, and then a month later, they're still there, and I'm kind of an aesthetic junkie. I have to admit, I like, I like things, you know, and I think, well, any, this is my thought process, just so you, any normal person would not want to live in a situation where you feel like this, that 
you know, and I'm starting to say I feel like I live in Appalachia, which is a criticism. I'm sorry, but I mean, I, I feel like I shouldn't say that. Anyway, so then I say, okay, what this, I'm coming home, I'm getting anxious, I'm getting tight, you know, don't have that feeling, or I feel that way, you know, I'm wise enough to know I'm feeling this way. Okay, so today I came home, and um, it was the same way, and I'm here tonight, and I'm thinking, am I, do I need to, I don't want to suffer with this, I could have a different relationship with it, or do I need to move? I mean, literally, do I, when do you get to the point where you say, I'm not going to suffer, I've changed everything I know, do I need to move? <laughs> okay, so that's yeah, my question. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And, and even that comment about Appalachia, and, and you caught it, and it's really great. But that's just, I want to just point that out. That's what I mean by our conditioning, our biases. It just comes out, because that's who we are. And the, the question is, can we acknowledge it and realize, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it happens around race, it happens around gender, it happens about, you know, sexual orientation in so many ways that we, and class, that we perpetuate that. And and here's the thing, it's like, your example is so good, Mary Laurel, because it's like, it's so hard for us to get to the place where we realize, oh yeah, there is pain. So that, you might try that, like, when, because it's totally okay for you to have the conditioning of order, right? It's not necessarily right, but it's okay to be that, conditioned that way, because you are conditioned that way. Right? I'm conditioned that way too. I like order. So then when there's disorder, there will be pain. Right? So then acknowledge it's painful. Like, oh yeah, sometimes <coughs> life is painful. It's not the way this mind, this heart likes it to be. It hurts. Can that be okay? to have that exposure, that vulnerability to disorder. Because in order to have clarity about whether you should move or whether you should say something or whether you should keep quiet and just bear it, you want to start by making peace with the exposure and vulnerability to the world being not the way you want it to be. Now, when you make peace with it, you're not saying you're not going to do anything. You're just saying that right now it is this way. The boxes are there. So I'm going to make peace with that, not because I like it or I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to make peace with it because right now this is my life. My life is this hallway with boxes. So what does freedom look like now? And then, because you're taking, first and foremost, you're taking responsibility for being free here and now. Once you have some sense of that possibility, of being okay, then do what seems right to do. Say something, don't say something, move, don't move. It's like this at work too, you know, with jobs. Should I leave the job or should I stay? Should I leave the relationship or stay? Should I continue to live my life or commit suicide? You know, whatever you might think about these sort of choices that we have in life, um, it's really nice if we can get to the place with well, I know I need to make a choice, and uh, I don't know, you know, I'm not in control, so like, there's consequences to saying something to the person, there are consequences to moving, there's no guarantee with any of this stuff, 
There's consequences also to not saying anything, right? That can have its own, depending on our, uh, de- depending on our temperament, that could be the most unhealthy thing to do, to not say something. Or for other people, saying something could be the most unhealthy thing to do, right? If you're somebody who always says something, then you might want to experiment with not saying something. If you're somebody who is always afraid to say something, you might want to try to find a way to step into saying something, right? To kind of get clear about how to be skillful, how to respond not from being tight, but from being free in the situation. Could it be okay if these boxes never, ever left? <laughs> or if I, I just put every ounce of skill I have to talking with this person, really patient, really sensitive, really, and they take their boxes out, and then somebody else leaves a box in the hall. right? Because you're never out of the woods with this kind of disorder stuff. right? When we live in the chaos of whatever it is, seven billion human beings and you know all the other forces at play, we're never going to be in control of it all. So there's always going to be chaos. It's Ajahn Chah, the person I mentioned. He, some of you know the story, but somebody uh, in England, when the, some of the Western monks started a monastery in England, and eventually Ajahn Chah came over to visit, and somebody had painted this life-size portrait of Ajahn Chah sitting in the tropical jungle, so with this amazing array of leaves and birds and and just like a photograph. It was like a perfect painting, oil painting. And he studied it for a while. He just, you know, arrived and had a prominent place in the monastery. He was looking at it, looking at it. And the painter was sort of in the crowd. And he turns to the leaders and says, people who are perfectionists really suffer. (laughs) It's true. But you know what? People who don't care about order, they really suffer too. You know, or people who have like a chip on their shoulder and think order is sort of just uh, acting out of neurotic people, you know, all those people who need order, you know, those people really suffer too. Infinite number of ways to have a suffering existence, (laughs) unfortunately. Thank you. Thanks for starting us off, Mary Laurel. Who'd like to go next? Yeah. All right, and then we'll go to... So this kind of illustrates something that I find incredibly annoying about Theravada Buddhism, is that if suffering isn't a personal problem, all suffering is ultimately selfishness, right? So why isn't the solution to our suffering, the answer is compassion? And I think it's always implied in what you say, but like the instance in like... What do I do about this, you know, with the boxes? Why not, you know, consider maybe this person needs help moving their boxes. Maybe what I can say is, can I help you? Or, you know, I've had some very minor health issues going on, and I fix my health by eating kale salad from my garden. And in doing it, it's, you know, it starts with a selfish motive. But in doing that, I realize how much better is it for everybody that I walk out to my garden and eat kale salad every night. So... And even in looking at issues we can't that are we feel are brought on to us, one teacher once said, you know, the people who hurt you are people who are hurting the worst themselves. So that gives you the basis for equanimity, which is the basis for empathy, which is the basis for compassion. So compassion is ultimately always the skillful answer, right? Right, but the thing is, 
saying that, and let's say we we think Laura's right, and then we're going to use compassion as a strategy to avoid suffering, right? And it will be a fixed view, and it will stop working. So it's not that what you said is wrong. It's really how does somebody best get there? And the way the Buddha talks about getting to compassion, or just skillfulness generally, right? There are different flavors. You could call all the flavors of skillfulness, compassion, or love, but, you know, skillful is a better word because it's really defined by the absence of planting seeds of suffering. We're not trying to be compassionate. We're trying to be free from suffering. And the thing about meeting the suffering and allowing the compassionate response to arise and seeing how effective it is, how liberating it is, that's what really transforms the heart. But if we haven't, if we're told the answer, it's not really an answer. It has to be an organic, because it's not a somebody who's compassionate. It's a natural movement of the heart, right? It's a holistic picture. Yeah. Yeah, and the Buddha talks all the time about compassion and, and metta, yeah. right? So it's, it's it's totally there in Theravada Buddhism. That, that. yeah, <laughs> but 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 the thing is, you have to understand, like every institution, there's a lot of there's a lot of politics. So the later schools of Buddhism that emphasize compassion talk about early Buddhism as not being compassionate. But remember, that's politics. So there are wise people and there are unwise people. And it has nothing to do with what institutional frame they're working with. They're either wise or they're not. And it's never, we always have to be careful when we think, like we think, we tell somebody how they're practicing, like calling Theravada. That's, that's not so different than talking about people in Appalachia, right? It's just, it seems more politically correct to be able to sort of say things about religious systems like pigeonholing them as if they're this way or that way. Because it's not really about being an early Buddhist. It's about using our life to see what works directly, immediately. That's what early Buddhism is. It's this very pragmatic, develop a presence, a calm, steady presence, and see what helps and doesn't help. Who can disagree with that? right? So it's not about institutionalizing the teachings. The Buddha taught a process. He didn't talk too much about the way or right and wrong. He talked about a process. Like, when you're present, you'll see what works and doesn't work, what causes suffering, what leads to release. And you're totally right, Laura. It really helps to be compassionate. But it has to be a natural, impersonal response. If it's a personal stance, the compassion, even though it's better than hate as a personal response, it still stinks. It's still a contracted response. Like, oh yeah, I'm using compassion to avoid suffering undermines the compassion. But still, it's better than nothing. I think, uh, Caroline, and then we'll go to Zinsale. We have a couple minutes left. Hi, I'm Carolyn. Um, two things. Um, when you were talking about um, facing suffering and not not running, that wasn't the verb you know the words you used. But 
um, so I have four sisters, and I heard once, I think it was in one of Jack Cornfield's books, about um, my family loves me when I'm a Buddha, but not when I'm a Buddhist. Yeah. And that's really how it is with them. And I have this, without, without explaining it, love-hate relationship with all of them because I'm very different than them. Um, so when I step forward and try to, you know, relate, it's just this constant conflict, you know, of we want you to be back in the stance with us. We want you to behave in this certain way. We don't agree with what you're doing. You know, it kind of goes on and on. I'm sure people can relate to this, right? So my question is, how, how often do I step into that being a good student? And when do I know when to step away and take time? And it feels like no matter which I do, I'm never, not that I'm trying to win, but I can never be skillful. It's very difficult. Could you say, I'll never be free from pain? Because that may help you figure out what, like it may not matter what you do. Maybe, and you may even say that to yourself, I don't know what I'm going to do. But whatever I do, I'm going to practice not clinging, not taking it personally. Or I'm going to practice relating to it in a skillful way, in a compassionate way, right? Just in a way that doesn't plant more seeds of suffering. So if I'm in, leaning in, showing up to them, I'm going to practice being free, not planting seeds of suffering. If I'm leaning out, having more time alone, away from them, I'm going to practice being free, not planting seeds of suffering. Because you can, you need to learn how to be free at both of those instead of thinking one is always right or wrong. Yeah, thanks for that. Zinzala, you get the last words. I'm going to pass it up here. Well, I guess this kind of um, it relates back to kind of the discussion, but I have this terrible burn from reaching my hand into the oven without a mitt and trying to turn over a sweet potato. So basically burned off like the first layer of skin. Anyways, it didn't bother me actually. It looked pretty terrible and, you know, but it didn't bother me until I got on a plane and was stuck on a tarmac for like three hours. And then the thing started bleeding and and it, it started hurting a lot because it was just so much like intensity of negative feeling like people arguing and then people it was all types of craziness going down on that plane and then all of a sudden it started hurting and it started bleeding and so I like you know I'm adding to it because I'm like ding ding I need the first aid kit you know (laughs) anyways they came and put it on there but I say all that to say it's like I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you're around a lot of intensely when you're a lot of when you're around a lot of suffering people, or when you're in a, an environment where there's a lot of suffering, you tend to suffer more or be put more. You heap more on the pain than you would if you're not really focusing on it. And so I don't know, like it's going to hurt to have a burn, but when it's your body, some kind of way starts to actually intensify it, like. Like I can make a whole story about, oh, my poor burn, you know, all this. But it didn't really come to the surface until I'm in an environment where there's a lot of, just a lot of negative intensity. Yeah. And that actually points to the very deepest teachings. Like, we're not in control. And sometimes we're in that environment and like it or not, no matter how much wisdom 
what gets triggered is going to be triggered by the super-in. But we never lose the possibility of recognizing, oh, I'm in this hateful soup. Because when people are frustrated and we're surrounded, and especially in that little tight space, right, it's very hard for our minds not to be affected by the negativity around us. But wisdom, especially if it's well-trained, the mind is well-trained, wisdom can keep recognizing that it's getting triggered, that it's getting hot and bothered, that it's starting to notice all the things that irritate me, right? And that that it's in danger of acting on the triggers that are getting triggered, right? So then then we can start to protect ourselves, like what we pay attention, don't look at that person, don't look at that thing, right? Because we know if I keep noticing that child crying, I'm going to blow up or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not there now. (laughs) You survived. (laughs) So let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Thanks, Anthony. Just enough time for one or two breaths. Drawing the stillness for another moment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.